Elevate your summer with Osea's best-selling body care set. It's everything you need for radiant summer skin on the go. Featuring travel sizes of Osea's clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral skincare, like their best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Right now, you can get the best-seller's body care set, a $78 value, 33% off. And use code SUMMER to save an additional 10%. That's an additional 10% off at OCEAMalibu.com code SUMMER. No one knew where the man who called himself Albert Johnson came from. But this was nothing unusual throughout the Canadian Northwest back then. The year 1931 was during the height of the Great Depression, and the area often attracted transients looking for work. A lot of times that work involved fur trapping, as men from all across the states and Canada came and went from the area shuffling anonymously in and out like waiters in a restaurant. So it was, as far as anyone knew, with the man calling himself Albert Johnson. He kept mostly to himself that warm summer. The local natives who encountered him said he was quiet and reserved. When he did speak, people noticed that he had a vague accent. Scandinavian, perhaps. It was difficult to pin down, but most likely something from that region. One day, he came floating on a raft on the Peel River into Fort McPherson. He beached his raft and headed toward the settlement area. Here, there stood a series of whitewashed cabins and a log trading outpost. Christians sometimes referred to this area as God's country. And on that particular summer day, one need only look around to see why. It was a picturesque landscape of blue skies, green fields, and majestic mountains. Just beyond to the northeast was the emerald green delta of the Mackenzie River, a broad marsh that melted into the Arctic Sea. To the west lay the northernmost track of the Mackenzie Mountains, their white-tipped peaks rimming the horizon, and remaining a constant reminder that eventually the days would cool, the skies would gray, and soon this entire area would be buried under a carpet of thick snow as tall as your average man. On this hot July day, the stranger who said his name was Albert Johnson strode brusquely into the trading outpost. He wasn't particularly big. Most people guessed him to be around 35 to 40, even though it was clear those had been hard years on him. He walked stoop-shouldered with a weathered and sunburned face, marked by several reddish bumps. Signs he'd gotten too close to the marshlands, which this time of year buzzed with mosquitoes and other biting insects. Bill Douglas, the trading post proprietor, could tell the man was a loner a mile off. He knew the type that came into the post for provisions all too well. The man spoke few words, only to order supplies. And he appeared to go out of his way to avoid answering even the most casual questions. Over the next ten days, the stranger spent $1,400 at the post. The most he would reveal about himself was that he was putting an outfit together to trap along the Rat River. One thing that struck Douglas as odd about the man was the thick wad of cash he carried with him, several thousand dollars at a glance. He was certainly wealthier than you'd expect some down in his luck transient to be, but even that could be explained away. 
Some successful trappers could make as much as four or $5,000 over a season. Besides the money, there was also something else Douglas couldn't quite put his finger on that just felt wrong about the man. He couldn't quite say what it was about him, but there was something about this fellow that just rubbed him the wrong way. So Douglas was secretly grateful one day toward the end of the man's outfitting run, when Constable Edgar Millen of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police came paddling in on a routine patrol. Millen was highly regarded throughout the area, and he got along well with everyone. A group of Lachoux Indians had told the constable about this stranger who called himself Albert Johnson, and it piqued Millen's curiosity enough to want to find out more. When Douglas spotted Millen, he took the constable aside and told him the stranger had purchased a nine-foot canoe, and it informed him he was planning on trapping up the Rat River. Douglas also told him it was clear the man was unfamiliar with the territory, because he kept mixing up the names of the Peel and Porcupine Rivers, something no local would do since both waterways flowed many miles apart. Millen went looking for Johnson figuring he'd offer the man some friendly advice and set him straight. He knew a man unfamiliar with the territory could get himself in some trouble, especially during the freezing winter, when even the Mounties might have trouble reaching him in time. Millen found the man who said his name was Albert Johnson down by the steamboat landing, assembling his gear. Millen put out his hand to shake, and the man hesitated before taking it. The Mountie asked Johnson if there was anything he could do for him. Johnson shook his head no and said he was just pulling out. From the man's accent, Millen thought the man might have been Swedish, perhaps a recent immigrant up from the northern states. His face was flat and hard with an upturned nose, and Millen could see the tension and hostility in his eyes. Upon questioning, Johnson told Millen he'd come in along the Mackenzie River adding that he'd been working these past few months on the prairies. But Millen knew the stranger had told Douglas a completely different story. Millen decided to let the lie pass and instead offered to set the man up with a trapper's license to save him having to make another trip later on. But Johnson declined, saying he wasn't sure what his plans were yet. Within minutes of talking to him, one thing Millen knew for certain was this man didn't know the area. So when Millen suggested Johnson ought to hire himself a guide, he was taken aback when the man suddenly snapped at him that he just wanted to be left alone. I don't want people bothering me, he said angrily. I like to live alone. You police just caused me trouble. I don't want nothing to do with you. Millen honestly thought the man was on the verge of taking a swing at him before he held himself back. Instead, the man's tone turned shrewd. You want to know all about me, he said. All right, I'm not staying here. If I'm not staying here, you don't have to know all about me, eh? If that was truly the case, then Millen knew he was limited in what he could do. If the man left his jurisdiction, then he would become some other Mountie's problem. Millen stared into the man's hard blue eyes for another minute before he decided to just let the matter go. For the most part, no one heard any more from the man called Albert Johnson for another six months. Not until after winter had come, and the once lush green land was now a memory buried beneath snow, 
That was when a group of Lashoe Indians came down the Arctic Red River and filed an official complaint with the Mounties. The man called Johnson had apparently failed to get past the Rat Rapids, and had instead built himself a cabin at the mouth of Rat Canyon, right along a trap line the Lashoe had been using for centuries. This was already against the law, but on top of all that, the man had also begun springing Lashoe traps and flinging them into the trees, then replacing them with his own. When the Indians tried stopping by the cabin to reason with the man, he shooed them away with a rifle. This was the event that would spark the largest and most famous manhunt in the Canadian Northwest. It was a story so highly publicized and sensational that newspapers across three continents would sell out on a daily basis. It was even cited as a major factor in boosting the sale of personal radios, as tens of thousands of people tuned in breathlessly to hear the latest news about the gunfights and the murder, and to learn the identity of the mysterious mad trapper of Rat River. I'm Nate Hale! always on the run and looking for the one-armed man who framed me. And this is The Conspirators. To this day, no one knows who Albert Johnson really was. But the one thing we can say with near certainty is that Albert Johnson was not his real name. Beyond that, it's all speculation, but we'll get there eventually. We do know that despite his seeming unfamiliarity with the terrain, that lack of knowledge didn't manage to slow the mad trapper of Rat River, as he came to be known, down one bit as he led the RCMP on a violent and treacherous chase across 150 miles of frozen wilderness. Just before Christmas, a few members of the Lashoe tribe came down the Red River to file an official complaint. In response, the head of the local Mounties sent a constable named Alfred King on a friendly visit to go talk to Albert Johnson and discuss what he was doing wrong. On December 26th, King gathered a dog team and headed out with a special constable named Joe Bernard. They both knew the area in which the man had built his cabin. This place had earned the nickname Destruction City after hundreds of would-be prospectors during the Yukon Gold Rush got shipwrecked there one winter and all froze to death or died of scurvy. Three days after the constable set out on their 80-mile trek into Rat Canyon, they spotted Johnson's cabin. It barely stood out against the landscape, much of it having been buried in the deep snows among a clump of spruce trees near the left bank. Constable King left Bernard behind to care for the dogs as he snowshoed his way toward the cabin. Standing beside the door were a pair of homemade snowshoes crafted out of bent willow branches and caribou hide. Smoke rose from the stovepipe. King knocked on the door and called out to Albert Johnson, but Johnson didn't respond, even though all signs pointed to the man being inside. Constable King stepped away from the front door and walked around the tiny, squarish structure. That was when he noticed the holes that had been poked through in every corner of the cabin and recognized them for what they were. They were rifle ports. King used a gloved hand to rub away the frost from one of the tiny windows and peered inside. Just inches away, he could see the man's angry, wild eyes glaring back at him. 
Once again, King shouted for the man to come out and talk to him, but he was met only with silence. Then Johnson pulled a sack across the window, blocking his view. Constable King cursed to himself. He knew he would have to obtain a search warrant to investigate any further, and that meant he'd have to make another 160-mile trek to the nearest inspector for the district. It wasn't until the morning of December 31st when Constable King finally rode his dog sled back to the location of Albert Johnson's cabin. This time around, the mount he had brought extra help with him, just in case Johnson caused any trouble. There was Joe Bernard, along with another constable named R.G. McDowell, and a member of the Lashu tribe named Lazarus Sidichulis. King told Bernard to remain with the dogs. He then ordered Lazarus to circle around back and told McDowell to cover him. More smoke poured from the stovepipe. There was no hiding that the cabin was occupied. King went up to the front door and pounded on it hard, ordering Albert Johnson to come out. He thought he heard movement inside. He called out to Johnson that he had a search warrant that the man needed to let him in, or else he'd have to break the door down. The constable tested the door by ramming it with his shoulder, and it gave a little. Then he rammed it again. Only this time, something hit back at him so hard it propelled King backwards into the snow. At first, he didn't know what had hit him. He didn't comprehend that he'd just been shot until he raised his hand in front of his face and saw that it was soaked with blood. More gunshots rang out, each shot punching holes through the door and passing just inches overhead. King could hear McDowell shouting at him to crawl in his direction and make for the brush. King managed to pull himself to his feet. He staggered toward the brush, then abruptly collapsed. McDowell was returning fire. After that, King could only muster the strength to crawl. Moments later, Lazarus was at his side, helping drag him down the bank. The other men worked fast to bandage King's wound and staunch the blood. The sub-zero temperatures were freezing the blood practically as soon as it left his body. The men lashed Constable King to the toboggan and tried to figure out their next move. They knew the wounded man was their top priority, so they all climbed on the toboggan and forced the already tired dogs to haul them back the 80 miles they had come. They rode most of the day and night, and were eventually able to get Constable King to the Anglican Mission Hospital in Aklavik. Although the bullet had pierced his stomach, it had luckily missed the constable's heart and lungs by less than an inch. The doctors were eventually able to save his life. McDowell and the other men informed the RCMP inspector in charge, a man named A.N. Eames, about what had happened. Eames quickly assembled a posse that included himself, McDowell, Sidichulis, Constable Millen, and three trappers who were in town for New Year's Eve, Ernest Sutherland, Carl Gardland, and Nude Lang. They also hired a native guide who knew the terrain in case Johnson made a break for it. They decided they weren't taking any chances this time, so along with their guns, they also brought with them a load of dynamite. They drove the dogs through a raging storm to reach the cabin. By the time they finally got there, they were eight days out and had only two days' worth of food left for the dogs. It was noon and the storm had started to break. Eames told the men to spread out as far as they could get around the cabin. They crouched down and Eames called out and identified himself. He ordered Johnson to come out peacefully. There was no response. May as well give up, Eames shouted. There's eight of us here. Still no answer. 
Aim signaled the other men to move in closer. That's when gunfire erupted from one of the cabin's gun ports. The men dropped into the snow and inched for cover on their bellies. Two of the men finally made it to the front door and tried smashing it open with their rifle butts. More gunshots rang out, splintering the wood outward. The men ran for it and took shelter just beyond the riverbank. The broken door lay partially open, offering Eames enough of a view that he could tell Johnson was crouched low inside some sort of pit dug into the cabin floor. Eames left two of the men on watch and took the others with him down the river. There they set up tents and started a fire to warm their frostbitten hands. They also used the fire in their body heat to begin thawing the dynamite inside their coats. Soon after, they tried chucking a couple sticks of dynamite toward the cabin, hoping the explosions would startle the man out of hiding. But it had no effect. Just after midnight, Nude Lang suggested he might be able to climb up on the cabin's roof and drop some explosives there that would blow the roof off the place. Eames agreed it was worth a shot. Lang scrambled toward the cabin as bullets whizzed by him. He managed to climb up on top of the roof and laid a lit stick of dynamite in the snow before backing away to safety. The dynamite exploded and left a jagged hole in the roof. Lang crawled forward and peered through the smoke only to peer down and see a startled Johnson staring back up at him. Johnson was crouching down inside a hollowed-out area of the floor. He had a sawed-off shotgun in one hand and a revolver in the other. The men locked eyes with one another for an interminable moment before Johnson fired off a wild round that just barely missed Lang. He fell backwards and ran for cover toward the riverbank. He told Eames he had time to see that Johnson had a shotgun, the revolver, and two rifles. It was nearly pitch black by that time of night, so the men tossed some flares toward the cabin to provide some illumination. At 3 a.m., Eames tossed the last of the dynamite against the front of the cabin. The explosion leveled much of what remained of the structure. Carl Gardland rushed toward the cabin ruins with a flashlight, hoping to catch Johnson off guard following the explosion. But when Gardland switched on the flashlight, a rifle shot knocked it from his hand. Whoever this man was, he was a really good shot. Eames realized all their efforts were becoming futile. The men were freezing and hungry, and nothing they were doing could get Johnson to come out of his hidey hole. So he decided to retreat and bring in more reinforcements. He and the others traveled back to Aklavik, where they gathered more supplies and more men. A couple of army signalmen crafted some homemade bombs out of beer bottles filled with sulfur and gunpowder. At that point, despite all that had occurred, Eames still had every intention of bringing Johnson in alive. By now, word had begun to travel about this fearsome mad trapper who'd gotten into a wild gunfight with the Mounties. An amateur radio station picked up the story, and that news soon spread its way to newspapers farther south. When the posse next returned to the cabin, they found it deserted. Inside, they were startled to see the man had dug a trench into the earth just big enough for him to lower himself into for protection. It was January 17th by the time even more men arrived to aid in their hunt. They made their base camp at the mouth of the Rat River. They all agreed that Johnson couldn't possibly have gotten far since he had to be traveling on foot and loaded down with a heavy pack. He'd have to be living off the land since he'd only be able to carry so many supplies and had no dogs to drag them. They spent the next four days combing the canyon looking for him, but they couldn't find any sign of Albert Johnson anywhere. 
Ames withdrew most of the men so that he could leave the majority of the rations with the four most capable hunters and trackers. This was Constable Millen, Carl Gardland, Noel Vervel, and one of the Army signalmen, Frank Riddell. The four men worked in pairs, searching the red deeper and deeper into the high country, always looking for signs which direction Johnson may have gone. Finding tracks in the shifting snow was basically impossible, so they instead looked for other signs like broken tree branches, or signs the man had been trapping. At one point they found two caches of caribou Johnson must have killed in the fall. They watched him from a distant perch for two days, but Johnson did not appear to claim them. It was January 28th when Riddell spotted a blue trickle of smoke rising up from a gorge. He signaled to Verville, who was a couple ridges away, and the two men crawled to the edge of the cliff to get a look below. Some 50 feet down, they could see Johnson tending a campfire in a thicket. Riddell raised his rifle and got the man in his sights. He considered taking the shot, but then thought better of it. He was certain he'd kill him for this angle, and he didn't want either man's life or a manslaughter charge haunting him. After all, neither he nor Verville were actual law enforcement. The two of them went back and informed Millen what they had seen. This time, all four men returned to the perch above the campsite. But they must have made too much noise, which alerted Johnson to their presence. Upon hearing them draw closer, Johnson flung himself behind a snowbank and opened fire. Millen shouted for Johnson to stop and give himself up. Millen and Verville tried edging forward. Johnson fired twice. Gardland returned fire and shouted that he thought he might have hit him. They listened and heard nothing. Then the men climbed down the bank. They didn't see the rifle barrel sticking out of a barricade in the brush until it was too late. Riddell shouted for them to look out. A shot ripped into a tree's trunk, sending splinters into his cheek. Riddell dove into the nearest snowbank and rolled over to the other side. More gunshots rang out. Millen returned fire. Then suddenly a shot caught Millen square in the chest, spinning him around and laying him out face first in the snow. Riddell and Gardland got to him. When they rolled the constable over, they saw that his face was gray and his eyes were fixed open. The man was dead. The remaining men knew they were in a terrible predicament. They realized that Johnson was hunkered down good into his makeshift shelter and there was no way for them to safely get to him. They tied spruce branches around Millen's face to keep the ravens from pecking his eyes out. Then they dragged the constable's body up onto the bank and hoped no other small animals got to him before they could take him away from there. Gardlin and Verville agreed to stay behind while Riddell headed back to find Eames and inform him of Constable Millen's death. News of the murder made it onto the radio. Soon, word spread throughout the region, bringing even more trappers in who wanted to help join the manhunt. When the men finally returned to Johnson's last known location, Gardlin informed them he had managed to slip away in the night. For the next three days, Johnson continued to elude them. It became apparent he was backtracking in the snow and even reversing his snowshoes to make it even more difficult to tell which direction he was going. No one could believe the man's endurance. He managed to climb a 7,000-foot peak on foot without stopping. By now, a bush pilot named Calfred Wilfred Wop May joined the manhunt. May had once served as a World War I flying ace who had even gotten into a dogfight with the legendary German ace Manfred von Richthofen, a.k.a. the Red Baron, 
May would become the first pilot in history to help in a manhunt. With May's help flying overhead, he was able to scout a much wider area for the posse on the ground. It soon became apparent to May, who reported back to the others, that Johnson was headed for Alaska. The indigenous guides helping the search told the other men they believed there was no way any lone man could make that journey on foot. The Great Divide stood between him and Alaska, and the guides were absolutely certain the man would either starve or freeze to death long before he could make it that far. But that's precisely what Johnson did. By February 13th, the posse had followed Johnson's tracks over the Great Divide to the Bell River. By the time they reached the mouth of the Eagle River, they once again lost Johnson's track. They soon realized he must have taken his snowshoes off and was hiding his trail by walking amidst a herd of migrating caribou. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No they were able to once again pick up Johnson's trail two days later where it split apart from the caribou herd. Another army signalman named Heps Hersey was startled one day when he turned around and saw Johnson walking toward him. For a second, both men stopped and stared. Then Johnson scrambled to yank on his snowshoes and make a run for it. Hersey grabbed his rifle from his toboggan. He fired off a shot as Johnson tried climbing a steep bank to the south. Verville joined in and fired at Johnson as well. Johnson whipped around and returned fire. This time, Hersey got hit and went down. By now, the others were rushing toward the sound of gunfire. Johnson wasn't able to climb the steep bank, so he turned and fled back in the direction he'd been coming from, toward a much lower slope to the north. He kept firing and reloading as he ran. Soon he dropped his pack, lay flat to the ground, and began laying down a series of rapid-fire shots so close together it sounded like machine-gun fire. The posse began to circle around Johnson and return fire. One of these shots struck Johnson in the pelvis at an acute angle and ultimately proved to be a fatal wound. At just past noon, Johnson's gunfire ceased, and he just lay there still. The other men cautiously approached and rolled the body over. Even in Teth, his pale blue eyes stared furiously back at them. Perhaps most disturbingly of all was the way the dead man's mouth stood open with his teeth bare. It looked as if he was grinning at them. Captain May landed his plane and some of the men helped Hersey on board. Johnson's bullet had torn across his left knee, shattering his elbow and puncturing his lungs. At first, Hersey didn't even realize he'd been shot in the chest and was bleeding steadily. May gave the man a sedative and flew him back to Aklovic to get medical attention and saving his life. And like that, the manhunt for the mad trapper of Rat River was over. But his death still leaves one big unanswered question. Who was he? Before we try to answer that question, I need to take a moment to tell you about this episode's sponsor, Audible. Let's face it, we all know last year was a total bust on so many levels. But as we head into summer, 
things are starting to look a little bit more normal. So how about we forget about last summer? It's all about this summer. We've all been inside long enough, so grab some beach towels, stock the cooler, and make your escape. It's time to celebrate the best season of the year like never before. And for me personally, one thing I love to do on the beach is to kick back and relax with a good book. With Audible, all I have to do is throw on my headphones and enjoy. With so many great stories and programs, Audible is the perfect summer partner. And now is the absolute best time to do it because Prime members can save 53% off your first four months. With Audible, you can listen to more of whatever you're into because Audible has it all. An unbeatable selection of audiobooks, tons of binge-worthy podcasts, and exclusive originals, all available to download or stream. Here's what you get. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month, like the latest bestseller or hottest new release, and it's yours to keep forever. But here's the best part. You also get it full access to Audible's streaming library, the Plus Catalog. Discover your next podcast obsession, check that audiobook off your bucket list, or get lost in a world of original content from celebrity creators, best-selling authors, and leading experts. The kind of stuff you can't hear anywhere else. Stream all you want, as much as you want. Audible is the perfect companion for summer, because no matter where you're going or what you're doing, you'll always have just the right thing to listen to at your fingertips. Perfect road trips, lazy beach days, long bike rides, or just barbecuing in the backyard. Right now, for a limited time, Amazon Prime members can save 53% on four months of Audible. That's only $6.95 a month. If you're not an Amazon Prime member, what are you waiting for? Go to Amazon and sign up so you can get this deal and so much more. Get more out of summer with Audible. To take advantage of this incredible limited time offer, go to audible.com conspirators. That's audible.com conspirators. And now, back to the show. No one believes the mad trapper of Rat River's real name was Albert Johnson. But to this day, his true identity remains a mystery. When the Mounties searched the mad trapper's body, they found many of the things a good hunter would need to survive in the wilderness. A compass, fish hooks, needle and thread, matches, an axe, a hunting knife. He also carried with him several kidney pills, five freshwater pearls, just over $2,400 in bills, some gold dust, and most disturbingly of all, a jar full of gold teeth that did not belong to him. One thing the man didn't have on him was any sort of identification. An examination of his body revealed he was probably somewhere in his 30s, although life in the wilderness had prematurely weathered him. He had no tattoos or other identifying marks. He appeared to have had no major surgery, and his fingerprints did not match any in police records. Before burying him in an unmarked grave, police photographed his disturbingly grinning corpse. The Mounties distributed the photographs, hoping someone might come forward to identify him. It took a few years, but finally someone did. In 1937, some trappers from the town of Dees Lake said the photo of the mad trapper, published in a detective magazine, resembled a man they knew named Arthur Nelson. They told police they had met Nelson back during the 1920s, and that he'd worked as a trapper in the area. They described him as a quiet man with a faint Scandinavian accent. Some of them thought he might have come from Denmark, although none of them ever confirmed this. Nelson had confessed to a few people about his love for local legends of lost mines, and had expressed interest in doing some treasure hunting. 
They said he seemed oddly suspicious of others and would never allow anyone else to walk behind him on a trail. Police asked if the man had seemed violent at all. The closest thing any of them could recall to such behavior came one night when a group of men, including Nelson, was sitting by a campfire. Nelson had laid his new rifle against a tree. One of the other hunters complimented him on it and picked it up to examine it. When he turned around, he was surprised to see Nelson standing inches behind him. Years later, when the hunters began to speculate that Arthur Nelson might have been the mad trapper Albert Johnson, they all wondered if Nelson might have meant to do the man who picked up his rifle harm. Another clue that indicated that Nelson and Johnson were one and the same was that someone else recalled seeing Nelson purchasing several boxes of the same brand of kidney pills that were also found in Albert Johnson. But even if Arthur Nelson and Albert Johnson were the same man, this didn't lead police much further than that, since Arthur Nelson appeared to be just as much a ghost as Johnson had been. The Mounties were unable to uncover anything more useful about Nelson, which also led them to believe Nelson was just another alias. Throughout the decades that followed, several possible theories have been suggested as to the identity of Albert Johnson. Authorities even unearthed his corpse a few years ago in order to take DNA samples, which did help rule out some potential suspects. But even with the man's DNA in hand, the true identity of the mad trapper remains a mystery. Genetic tests were able to determine that Johnson was likely Scandinavian by descent, although his tooth enamel strongly suggested he'd lived on a corn-heavy diet, which implied that he'd likely spent a good deal of time in the Midwestern United States. One theory goes that Albert Johnson was a hitman, judging by his skill with firearms and the large amount of cash he carried with him. According to this theory, Johnson might have been hiding out in the Northwest Territories after a successful job. Whereas there is little evidence to support this theory, Still others have pointed out that while he was seen with a sizable wad of cash, fur trapping could be quite lucrative with some successful trappers, making as much as $5,000 during a good winter. Another theory goes that Johnson might have been a serial killer. This theory seems to hold a little more water when you consider he was found with a jar full of gold teeth and fillings that didn't belong to him. Proponents of this theory also point out a number of strange deaths in the area, around places both Albert Johnson and Arthur Nelson were known to reside. Over the years, a number of fur trappers and miners did go missing or were found decapitated throughout the Northwestern Territories. But without direct evidence, this theory remains just that, only a theory. Even still, it's definitely a theory worth considering. Being such a predator would explain why the man might go to such lengths to keep his identity a secret, and why he would want to live on the outskirts of society as he did. Yet another theory suggests that perhaps Johnson really did strike it rich after finding some legendary gold mine. Proponents of this theory have said finding such a mine would explain why Johnson would be so secretive, and why he would go to such lengths to ward off claim jumpers or snooping government officials. One major problem with this theory, though, is that aside from the small amount of gold Johnson had on him, no other larger amounts of gold were found in the remains of his cabin or anywhere else. Based on his accent and rumors he might have come from Sweden or Denmark, some historians have suggested 
that Johnson may have been an illegal immigrant from one of those countries and was hiding out to avoid deportation. Another related theory suggests the man might have been a World War I draft dodger who fled from Scandinavia and was afraid of facing criminal prosecution if he was captured and arrested. Based on the man's estimated age in 1932, this theory remains plausible, since he likely would have been right around the prime age for the military draft in 1917 or 1918. If he was a former soldier, it would also help explain his skills with firearms and survival techniques. It also might help explain what he was doing living alone out in the wilderness. After the war, millions of soldiers came back suffering symptoms of severe emotional trauma that was referred to back then as shell shock, and we would know better today as post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD. It's plausible if this were the case that a mentally ill former soldier on the run might not react kindly to a group of armed men showing up on his doorstep. According to this theory, it also explains the mysterious trench dug into the cabin floor since trenches were commonly used for protection back during the war. Although skeptics of this theory have suggested that the so-called trench might simply have been a primitive root cellar or refrigeration area, as was common in a lot of makeshift log cabins. But as with a lot of historical mysteries, the true identity of Albert Johnson will likely remain just that, a mystery. And whatever secret the mad trapper of Rat River held, the man took it with him to the grave, smiling about it to the very end. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much for listening. I have some new Patreon supporters to thank. Thank you to Diane, Asalia, Mel, and John for signing up and helping support the show. You're all incredible. Just a reminder, the patrons of the show get access to all sorts of nifty bonuses, including stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and our exclusive bonus mini-episodes. If you're interested in becoming a patron, I'll put a link in the show notes. Besides Patreon, another great way you can help support the show is to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. Each one of your ratings and reviews helps boost us up in Apple's charts and spreads the good word to more listeners. If you're not on Apple, not to worry. We're also available on Spotify, Stitcher, and pretty much everywhere else you get your podcasts. We also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com, where you can listen to our entire back catalog of shows. I encourage you to also follow us on social media. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and our Facebook page. Feel free to drop us a line and let us know how we're doing. You can also send us a good old-fashioned email at theconspiratorspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll join us again next time.